Good evening, everyone, and welcome to episode number 24 of the Granite Cornerstone podcast. We are here tonight to talk about the unsung heroes of our lodge. Uh, and what we're talking about are the Marshall, Tyler, Chaplin, and the musician and or organist. Joining me this evening, we have uh, John Glover. John, welcome to the podcast. Good evening, Tim. How you doing? Also joining us, uh, Chris Busby. Chris, welcome. Hey, brother. How are you? And finally, uh, joining us again this evening is Scott Newberry. Scott, hello. Hey, how you doing, Tim? So we are here, like I said in the intro, to talk about the unsung heroes of our lodge. Um, and, you know, we, we've got these officers that we talk about all the time, the master, the senior deacon, the wardens, these guys who really make the events of the evening happen, right? But we also have this other group that we're talking about tonight, the unsung heroes, as we call them. Uh, we've already gone through with the musician organist, the Tyler, the Marshall, the chaplain. Why are these positions in particular the ones we decided to talk about tonight? What makes them unsung? Well, I think that oftentimes we they're sort of um, afterthoughts as far as how we how we look at at the lodge officers. Obviously, you know, the, the master, the wardens, the secretary, treasurer uh, hold key roles. Uh, in the officer line and in the officer corps. But I, I feel as a lot of times we, we look at these lodge officers and appoint as master, sometimes appoint because we, we need to appoint that position. Um, and sometimes it's uh, looked upon in these roles to be able to help the master, uh, which is completely a valid reason to, to appoint these roles. But I think sometimes we just... Uh, think of these roles as positions in which bodies need to need to go in rather than, you know, actual real functional members of, uh, of the officer corps in the, in the, in the, the duties of the lodge. Well, I think you mentioned something there, Chris, there's a difference because we talk about them as officers of the lodge, but they have specific roles to play. Right. And we don't, a lot of times, you know, we don't think about the fact that it's a role, not necessarily just a chair to sit in. So just uh, just for clarity here, has has anybody sat in one of these chairs before? Any of the guys here? Uh, okay, so I've also I've sat as chaplain. Uh, Chris, what what have you sat in as before? I have been chaplain. Okay, actually, before I was master, I was chaplain. Okay, Scott. I have sat as marshal. I'm currently a Tyler, and I filled in on occasion for chaplain in the past. And John, I've never been installed as any of these roles, but uh, I have served. Um, pro tem as Tyler Marshall and chaplain. Oh, wow. Okay. So, uh, let's start at the top. Um, alphabetically, I guess chaplain, Chris, are you, we lost you buddy. No, I'm here. Okay. Um, so yeah, let's talk about the chaplain. Uh, when we talk about this role, obviously, like we've said, you know, there is a tendency to appoint just a person to these roles, to these offices just because we need to have them. We need somebody to say the opening prayers in the ritual is required. Um, but what are we missing uh, with the chaplain in particular when we do that? Well, it's so much more than that. Um, you know, everything that we do in Lodge, particularly, you know, our ritual and, and everything official that we do in Lodge is, is cloaked in, in, in the idea of, of spirituality. Uh, spirituality, excuse me, if not religion, right? So to, and everything that we do is, is based around a supreme being. Um, so the chaplain really is the, is the sort of the, is meant to be the spiritual center of the lodge as far as the officers are concerned, leading, you know, leading the, uh, leading the lodge in prayer, uh, reciting the lessons that, that are important, that are key to, to our degree ritual that, that tell very serious and important lessons or extrapolate on those lessons. Um, that person, you know, really needs to understand sort of the, you know, and be sort of the heart and soul of, uh, of the, of the lodge. I think there's also, um, an important point that the chaplain sits right next to the master in lodge. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not just the spiritual center for the lodge, but also for the master. Um, Absolutely. I mean, the the master traditionally is the spiritual guide for the lodge, but the chaplain is his spiritual guide. Um, 
so yes, the chaplain does lead the lodge in prayer and whatnot, but it's always at the direction of the master. Um, now I specifically chose a chaplain, not necessarily for his religious prowess, but for his ability to be able to take apart the lessons and explain why do we use certain lessons mm -hmm. and, and help guide um, a better understanding of some of the more spiritual nature of what we do. You know, I think that that's, that, that's an interesting distinction, right? There, the, the prayers that we use really are meant to guide us in our activities. When you open a lodge and you open it with a prayer, you close it with a prayer, it has nearly as much weight um, as the opening and closing charge. We're really talking about what we're intending to do as we enter a lodge, and then we're kind of talking about how we should comport ourselves as we, we leave the lodge. And I think that those are very important roles that really need to have a, an understanding of the lessons of Freemasonry, like you said, John. Um, one of the other things that you mentioned, Chris, and, and I, I kind of want to pick up on this a little bit more, is the lessons, as they're called, right, as right. you're conducting a, a candidate around the lodge. That is something that I don't think we necessarily understand the importance of when we're when we're picking that position, right? So why is that so important to a candidate experience? Well, it touches on each, each of the lessons that are provided as a part of the three degrees of Freemasonry really centralize. Um, the reason why it's called a lesson is it, is it really sort of not only sort of puts focus on, but really illuminates the lessons that are about to come forward as a part of the degree itself. And so to be able to have that sort of call uh, to that lesson by the chaplain puts it in the, you know, puts what we're doing and notice it's very early on in our degrees, or at least the, the initial prayers are very early on in our degrees to be able to set the proper tone for the degree as being, as being a, a, a transformative spiritual process just like really everything that we do in masonry. But as far as those degrees are concerned, the messages that are contained within those lessons really encapsulate what it is that we're trying to do and, and gives the candidate a, you know, sort of um, scriptural basis for some of the things that we uh, were, were teaching in the craft. So I, I find that to be extraordinarily important. One of the... Uh the questions that comes up when it, we talk about Freemasonry, right? And a lot of people hear this certainly from outside of the fraternity is, is the religious aspect, right? And the difference that we know uh, as Masons, we talk about the difference between spirituality and, and religion, right? What is the chaplain's role there? You know, what, what is, what are some of the boundaries that we obviously have and, and kind of need to work within and how does the chaplain have to fit into that process? Scott, you've been uh, remarkably silent today. Well, it's because, you know, we have a former sitting chaplain with us, so we should let him speak as much as possible. I'm a currently installed chaplain, so. So, I mean, obviously, that's why we're letting you guys talk. Um, I think the importance from the standpoint where the chaplain sits is understanding that there's a difference between a spiritual aspect and the religious aspect. You know, religious religion typically has connotations based on the secular world. You know, regarding you know regarding what particular religious practice you follow in your private life. Masonry doesn't particularly care what your practice is, but understand the fact that when you walk into the lodge room, it's a spiritual aspect. That's one of the reasons why we don't use some of the terms that you would typically hear in church. You know, we we you know we try to use more generic terms that everybody can appreciate and understand what we're trying to use. And I think that's a really difficult thing for a lot of people to understand is, you know, we're have that spiritual aspect, but we're not trying to teach a religious dogma. And for a lot of people, they can't separate the two. They don't see the difference between the two. You know, you can go walk, you know, walk into a, a bookstore and you go into the religion section and there's all kinds of different books about religion and all the different religions on the planet, but nothing actually really speaks to, spirituality as a whole it's a, it's it's kind of get, gets pigeonholed 
Yeah, and I, I think I think one of you brought this up. We you know we have our sort of prep sessions for you know for for our podcast, and and one of the things that came up, somebody mentioned a military chaplain, yep. um, and not that that is has the same. It's a completely different thing, right? Please don't you know. Please let's not conflate masonry, you know, versus uh, the, the things that can happen in in, in battle, but. Um, at the same time, that chaplain is meant to be there to, to serve the spiritual needs of a, an extraordinarily vast array of religious and spiritual beliefs, um, and is trained in order to be able to do that. So again, it is a different weight, but at the same time, uh, I, I look at that as being a very, whoever mentioned it, thank you for mentioning that as being a very sort of parallel, um, approach to uh to spirituality and, and religion as far as our uh our population goes which is you know you have to have a belief in the supreme being but it is not dogmatically determined or we don't ask what what that might be yeah i think tim i think you mentioned it, it earlier it's when you look at that particular role in the lodge if you take a look at most leaders in the secular world, the outside outside the lodge room, most of those religious individuals are counselors as well as the leader of a given church. Yeah, that's so, very true. And yeah. that's really, I think, what a lot of the chaplain's role needs to be. We don't necessarily choose the individual because of that aspect, uh, but I think it's something that should be taken into consideration as, as you're looking at officers to a point when you're a master. How can you, you know, pick an individual who not only can necessarily remember everything that's in the ritual that they need to do, but can actually embody what that's supposed to mean and they can help convey that and be someone that, you know, hey, I've got a problem today. I just need to vent out and can sit there and, and help, you know, just talk through things when you're, when you're having a challenge. I mean, we all try to do that to a certain extent, but I think the chaplain, a little bit more people should be, be willing to approach. And I don't know if that's necessarily the case. No, and it's not something I don't think we, I don't think we ever talk about it, right? Because it's we view it as a, a an office, and it's just filled by a person, and that's that. Um, and several of them, it's like I just got to memorize this for the next ritual degree. I, I I listen as a lecturer, and I know Chris will probably back me up on this. I would kill if the installed chaplains would actually brush up on their rituals sometimes. Um, I, I can neither confirm nor comment on that particular item. It, it's one of those things that you know. We don't necessarily even put somebody there who's who's good at ritual, but their ritual burden is not insignificant, and it's relatively important to the process. And I think that we we do a disservice by essentially just putting someone in that role just because of whatever reason we put them there, because they wanted an officer's chair or, or whatever it may be. I think we, Tom... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. No, please, because that's one I, of the things I wanted to touch on. I was going to say, uh, Tom Ladd brings up a comment in on the YouTube page... Uh, we may also want to remember that the chaplain has a significant part in the Masonic yeah. Memorial Service, where we often have the greatest contact with the family of our departed brothers. And it's not even just there. It's every semi-public event. One of the, the only things that bleeds over from our lodge ritual uh, and our lodge session, you know, behind closed doors, is that prayer. And, and we do that, you know, we say it at the, the first line of the installation ritual is we are taught that no man should ever enter upon any great or important undertaking without invoking the blessing of God. We, we carry that through publicly, and it's one of those things that we get to share with non-Masons. Tim, did you just read that? No, he didn't. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to. I had to. I but had it's, to. it's interesting because <laughs> now having been a master and a secretary, the reaching out to the chaplain when a brother passes away is not on the list of things you typically do. No, you don't think about the chaplain and what they need and what the, you know. Or you know, yes, I when I was secretary, I provided the necessary pieces of of the puzzle, so to speak, for him to do his part. But that was the extent. And as master, you're not thinking about you know the chaplain necessarily. You're thinking about who can I get there to the service. Yeah, that's very true. You know, um, so, I mean, while he has such an integral part, and yes, he should be, you know, interacting with the family and, and those types of things, it's not typically seen as part of the role. Most people look to the master to do those things. 
And it's just, it's, it's, go, it's another piece of that, you know, what's your actual role as chaplain versus the office of chaplain? And I, th- I think in that capacity, the, the chaplain, both the chaplain and the master, when it comes to the funeral service, their, their, their role is to, is to move the audience, right? Whether it be out of actually really as, from a Masonic funeral service or degree or whatever it is, I mean, the role is to, is to get people to think, and 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 to move and to move uh, move people spiritually, and I feel as though that sometimes when we don't sort of really put the focus on, again, this is sort of broken record. I know from a lecturer standpoint, but the delivery of that, right, and 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 to show how much that that those lessons, those prayers mean to us, and the content of it, and how much it touches us, and share that uh, with our brothers or with of the family of a deceased brother, uh, whatever that is. I, I feel as though that when I see those, those times when cha- chaplain really digs down deep and is able to, to move somebody, it really has a, an incredible lasting impact. The difference between some of the, like the best grand chaplains that we have in this jurisdiction and some of the worst lodge chaplains, I don't mean to say anybody's bad, but like the, to your point, Chris, those people who deep, dig down deep and really deliver a meaningful prayer. The difference is is astronomical, the way it makes the room feel, right? And I think that kind of let's move on from the chaplain, right? Because we're talking about moving the lodge. Let's we can go we can go either physically or emotionally moving the lodge next. John, I'm gonna let you pick. Ooh, uh emotionally. Emotionally. What a struggle on the segue. No, this is a brilliant segue. We are we have two roles here. Let's go to the musician or the organist. Um, I think for, for starters, Tim, we need to make sure that everybody understands we're using the term musician because while it's organist in the ritual, a lot of lodges, the, the person who provides the music accompaniment is not necessarily an organist. Yeah, I, I mean, the number of people who can play the organ is is probably pretty slim these days. Yes. Um, we've got a couple of exceptional uh, grand organists. Uh, I've got a lodge that has an organ playing in every meeting. Uh, well, not every meeting. And that's kind of what leads me to, to make this such an important point. You have, John, do you have an organist or a musician in your lodge? We have an organist. Okay. So for those people who don't have music playing in your let me tell you from personal experience the way you feel listening to whether it's a flag presentation or a candidate procession when you normally do have music playing and then you go one meeting without the lack of emotion in the room is stark it is a big difference so scott let you don't have music playing in your lodge. Let's talk the, about that. The current lodge I belong to does not have music playing. The lodge I was raised in had a, still has an organist. It, it's a generational thing down there. Um, so it makes a huge difference. I didn't realize just how much music played a role until I sat in a lodge room. And to be honest with you, the first time someone moved from their office was when I picked up on it. Um, the gentleman who played the organ when I was at my original lodge, every time somebody moved, it didn't matter what they were doing with the exception of the chaplain. When he moved, he changed the music to fit more of that aspect of the law of the ritual in the lodge. But typically you got a march when someone was moving, you know, and a lot of the old standards, the, uh, the theme songs were the, the songs from the different branches of the military were played. You know, so you got anchors away and from the halls of Montezuma, you know, and those types of things. It really, while it's not necessarily what you would traditionally expect in a more somber experience, it lended itself to what was going on. You know, you've got the marshal moving. You've got, you know, they, you know, there's people moving around, moving to the different aspects of their position. And it added something when you got to the, the chaplain going to the altar. You know, I miss hearing typically amazing grace or something similar to that because it kind of sets the tone for when the chaplain gets to the altar you know and then hopefully to go back to our previous point you've got a chaplain who then can deliver do you think that by i mean 
you had to make the distinction that it doesn't need to be somebody who plays the organ. So I think that we limit ourselves by referring to this person colloquially as an organist uh, limits limits our selections a little bit. But oh, when it you absolutely does. So when you have an organist, right, and you have somebody who can actually play the physical organ is in the lodge room. Are you also limiting yourself by only allowing that to be the music that you play? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Talk about it, Chris. No, I, you know, I, I just went to a lodge meeting at, uh, at Humane uh, Lodge in Rochester on Monday. It was a degree. Um, and the master was uh, junior warden, came up to, to do the degree, actually opened and closed the lodge completely, did a very nice job. Uh, but the master actually was on his guitar um, the entire time, just, you know, just low acoustic. Some, some, some tunes I, I recognize, but there's a very, very low bed of music. On, on, on processions, on, on non, on periods where there were, wasn't ritual being spoken. And it was, it's really nice. You know, um, my own lodge uh, in Nashua has uh, our current, he, he's still an organist, uh, but uh, our brother Brian Murphy is a, is a guitarist, right? He's, he's electric acoustic. He brings out his amp. Um, he's in inappropriate certain times and in, dis in displaying his repertoire. He shredded a little bit. Uh, in the lodge room, uh, not necessarily during a degree, because that would be a little weird. Uh, but, you know, uh, but he, he has played during degrees. So, you know, uh, this craft is 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 based upon, uh, I mean, music is is one of the one of the seven liberal arts and sciences. It, it, it's something that is extraordinarily important to our craft. And if you look back historically, we've got, you know, song after song after song, all of the degrees have have songs the master has a song and if you look in york right there are songs there you know music is a central part but i think that we've just kind of let it slip away because of this idea that it has to be one certain thing it can be a, a you know a soloist uh, like at grand lodge we were just all all at grand lodge uh, the other uh, the other week there were several soloists during the installation that I, I mean uh you know um donna borthwick and, and michael brown they did a beautiful job um you know, in one of my lodges, we do uh, in Phoenix Lodge, we do recorded music, right? So, I think we do get that we get locked in um, to an idea of what that what that should be. But what we're doing is supposed to be very important and very moving, and to have that, uh, you know, that language uh, of of geometry, you know, spoken through music is well, you I can't think, beat it. I but I think we're depriving ourselves of an awful lot even with the uh, brother who can play guitar or a soloist, because what's happening is, is that we're still relying on an individual and what they're capable of. Not that there's anything wrong with that. There's a lot of very good musicians out there that have a yeah. very large repertoire of music, but take for a moment. And, and, you know, I'm a big fan of the movies cause I always like the movies, but if you, or the large theatric, uh, productions and stuff you have on the cable television these days but think about the opening to game of thrones or the opening to star wars and you have those big fanfare the big orchestra coming up that moves you in a different way than um you know yeah i know i said cable but i you could say <laughs> no there are a few you said on there. the cable television yes <laughs> like an 88 year old man <laughs> who's never seen a tv well, before well i am the old guy of the group so. <laughs> um but you know if you think about the the productions that are put out both you know on on the different services or in the on the movie theater the music is an integral part of what you're watching you know, the, the, the run up to a, a big scene, the letdown at the end, you know, it's it's a huge part of it. And while there are certain individuals out there who are great musicians who can mimic that, I'm sorry, hitting, you know, for lack of a better term, hitting play and hearing a hundred piece ensemble play a piece of music. It's very different than someone sitting at an organ or or sitting uh, playing on a guitar. It's a very different feeling. And, and I think that you make a, a great point, right? The amount of effort that goes into scoring a movie, right? To hit the right emotions at the right points. And, and I said this in the prep call, the musician's job is to score the work that we're doing and to yeah. hit those emotional notes at the right point in time. And I think, yeah, maybe, it's, maybe it is a soloist, maybe it is a guitarist, maybe it is an organ, 
but maybe it's not, right? And and when to bring those different elements in, I think is very important. Uh, John, mm-hmm. I I hear there's I see a comment here from from Tom Ladd again. Yeah, um, I expected he's gonna throw me under the bus. What is that noise? Does anybody else hear that? Yes. not chris because right, i'm now it's going okay that was real weird um so john do you sing i do see tom, tom i'm just putting the ad out there so if any organists run you know we can oh now we're running ads great <laughs> um have you sung in lodge before i have sung during certain uh, york right degrees okay and and how do you how how has that been received? How do you feel about what that's added to the to the night? Oh, it, it has added tremendous amount to uh, to the degree work. Um, only once or twice have I done it solo. It's actually typically done with at least a couple of other brethren. Wow. Um, particularly if it's a uh, if it's a you know, they're all always very short pieces, but if there are multiple verses, we usually start out uh, in unison and then break into harmony. Uh, and you were kind of hitting on something earlier, which I wanted to touch on, but I'll kind of reinforce here. The musician does not necessarily have to be a performer. No. Uh, I think it's important to at least have a proper appreciation and understanding of music uh, because of the need of choosing the right music for the for the right yes. time. Because you have to hit the... the uh, the, the proper emotions, or at least know what you're shooting for. You can't just grab a random piece of music and it's going to be great. Yeah. And I think last, was it last year's lodges of instruction um, that, that Paul Smith went around with the grandmaster and, and, and scored uh, some of that work in the lodge of instruction, which is using a Bluetooth speaker, but it's choosing the music to fit the moment. Yes. And, and he is and very I, skilled at that. Yeah. And, and I think that that is, Okay, it is John. Yep, you're picking. You're picking up uh, the FAA, I think. Yeah, I don't know what John's doing up there, but something's going on. It's my mini split because it's occasionally going on and off. I'll turn it off. Okay. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, that is. Is We're gonna mute John for a second. because that is not the music for this moment. <laughs> Look at his face. Poor John. Sorry, John. Usually we mute Chris. So I'm, yeah, you know, fair enough. Sure. Or I mute uh, myself. Somebody else's and... turn. Um, so yeah, I think we know what we're trying to accomplish here with with a good musician or a good organist, whatever it is. There's an emotional aspect yeah, to and, what and, we do, and it and needs I, to be reinforced. And I think one of the challenges in this, it's regardless of whether you're looking for a musician himself or someone who's going to play the organ or play guitar, part of the challenge is also understanding the ritual. Yeah. because uh, And the timing in your lodge room. And I think that's actually really important with all the parts we're talking about tonight is we tend to put people in these roles who may not be great ritualists um, because there's very little, if any, ritual burden for most of these roles, right? Obviously, the chaplain's an exception. The, the musician's got a ton of it. But they need to know the ritual to know what to do at the right time and, and how to lead those those things that they're doing, whatever role it is they're trying to fill. Yeah, and you know, the, the timing aspect is huge. I mean, what you can look across the jurisdiction. We've got lodge rooms that you can cro- cross from one end to the other in 60 seconds, and other ones, it'll take you a minute and a half to do the same thing. You can do and, a long leap. Yeah. <laughs> And, and I mean, that does it, change the, it changes yeah. the, the skill set. It changes yep. the selection. It changes all of it. You can't just, you can't just pick the same piece of music that you heard at a different lodge. Cause maybe it's not going to fit that procession. That's, a, that's actually a really good point, Scott, that I didn't even think about is the difference in a lodge size can make a significant difference in, in the selection of music. And you can't just go with what the other guy's doing because it may not fit the room you're in. And the, the resonance, all those things do tend to factor in. Rising Sun in, you know, Nashua, that lodge room is a room where I would be totally comfortable pulling out a set of bagpipes, right, to accompany a piece of ritual because it is such a big room and you've got that, you know, you've got the space for that sound to go. 
I'm not going to be doing that in, in dairy, for example, uh, where, you know, the ceiling's a little bit lower. You've got tin ceilings in there, don't you? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not playing a bagpipe in that room. It's going to kill everybody. Yeah. So that's a, that's a really interesting concept. Well, that takes all first. The yeah. Fair enough. Um, so the music we're using to score, uh, the lodge, the work, and a lot of what we're doing, really, we're using the music to fill the time as we're processing around the lodge. So let's move on to that physical movement we referenced earlier and talk about the marshal. That was a much yeah. better transition. Tim. Yes, you did much better on that one. Yeah. I thought the last one was excellent, <laughs> but whatever. Um, so, Chris, I, I know that you are in love with the marshal as a role. Um, we've talked about this a lot, but let's let's talk about the marshal and what they do in the lodge. What is the job of the marshal? Well, the marshal is meant to conduct all processions, be at the head of all processions, right? And that not only that, but really to escort brothers around the lodge when they need to walk uh, from one place to another uh, in an open lodge meeting to escort the master uh, where he needs to go, to escort the chaplain when the chaplain goes to the altar, uh, but then also in the degree. Now, how it's used to the degree, we can talk about here in a minute as far as uh, how you can use the chaplain, but, you know, or excuse me, the marshal, but the, the, the marshal is really meant to be sort of uh, a really a key to, and, and I mean this in a very positive way, the pomp and circumstance of the lodge. I'm getting it again. John is muted again. We'll bring him back when uh, <laughs> we figure out what the heck is going I on really, in his house. I really, really feel bad, John. Um, yeah, no, pomp and circumstance. Yes. Excellent uh, piece of music, by the way. Well, you know, I mean, just, but everything is supposed to be done at a very sort of high level in the lodge. And I, I think, and I think we could all agree to this to some extent, you know, these are my thoughts, but I feel as though we've lost a little bit of that, uh, lost a little bit of the ceremony and the, the, you know, the pomp and lodge a, a little bit. I mean, you can take it and go too far with it, I think. Um, but, uh, but you, you can also utilize that position to be able to show how important every, every person is, as they move about the lodge, um, you know, percent, you know, during, uh, during the master Mason degree in particular for, for those, you know, brothers that are on here will understand exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, during that second section of the degree, it's very important to have, uh, a marshal that knows exactly uh, what they're doing and where everyone needs to be. I point to Treff Sage uh, from, from Nashua for our own, you know, in the past, you know, what, during that part, he knows exactly where he needs to be and he uses his own, his own unique charm to be able to do that. And I love him for it. Uh, he's able to get everyone where he, where they need to be. And, and Masonic processions, especially when it comes to degrees, when it comes to parades, when it comes to, which Masons do a lot of, when it comes to funeral services, again, the Marshall plays is supposed to play a very uh, important role to make sure that everyone is where they need to be. And, 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 and every aspect of the ceremony uh, proceeds smoothly. Any, anybody who has been to a, visitation uh, or a lodge of instruction, especially, especially when Jerry Becker is in the room and is serving as marshal, yeah. knows that, I mean, Jerry is one of those guys who when he's leading a procession, he's having fun, he's having a good time, he's setting the tone for that procession in a big way. But when you walk outside of that lodge room and you're getting in a line, Jerry goes into business mode. Oh, because yeah. he knows he where every right. single person is supposed to be in that lineup. And it, it it is so important to make sure you get it right because, like you said, there is a little bit of pomp and circumstance. We've talked about protocol before. There is a protocol of who should be sitting where, um, uh, in in a lodge, and, and sort of who should talk and who should be in front. And the marshal needs to know those things. He really does keep the protocol in a lodge, and he sets the tone for how you walk around those nice square corners that we like to see in lodge. Um, and, and I think that's something that's really important to to understand when you appoint somebody as marshal. Um, when we talk about degree work, right? There's not a lot lot of lodges that are using the marshal in a degree. Chris, you you've certainly stressed that when we've done uh, when you were a DGL in, in District Two uh, as grand lecturer, you you stressed that in in all of the degrees that we've. 
performed uh, statewide. Um, what do they add to the degree, right? What, are they, what, are, what is the role there that you think is, is being underutilized? Well, it's, it's, it's adding a weight. And, and plus, you know, the, the floor work of what we do is so incredibly crucial. And, it, you know, you're looking at all of these different aspects and balance. You know, we talk about the music. It has its place and its balance. You have the movement, which has its place and its balance, right? And I think that if 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 a if there is a marshal that understands the solemnity and and the need for where folks need to be, and and shows sort of, for example, I, there's there's a few examples of recent ritual. Uh, actually, in Rochester on Monday, I saw it again. In, in the opening of a lodge where the senior deacon and the marshal actually came back together to the altar, right? Again, it just, it shows an, an impressiveness. The marshal isn't necessarily guiding the senior deacon, but they're, they're moving together in sync and parallel to each other around the altar, which can have its own Masonic meeting for those that, that know. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we forget, and I've talked about this before, is that with the floor work, we have a, a lot of ability to be able to make for lodges to make it make it their own. And I believe that from a from a pomp and circumstance, again for lack from a from a processional standpoint, um, not having the marshal or having the marshal sit down in a in a situation where we say that he leads all processions and there are processions and and other things that occur in our degrees that require that sort of expertise why wouldn't we be using marshall in that capacity well i think to that point chris it's because of the way it's taught in the traditions that you know we're not it's not a procession it's conducting and while sure. you may be conducting an individual round as part of the ritual it is a procession right so and i think that's where it it kind of gets lost in the mix is people don't see it as a procession that the marshal needs to be a part of and i think that's why you don't see it used as frequently as you as like you've seen in the past it's certain right. lodges I, no, I, know, I know the first time i saw it was kind of it's like what are they doing and then it's like oh that makes total sense yeah right. uh, chris has forced me to do it on many occasions and it's not something that i've done in, in my own lodge but it's something that does add a little weight to the experience John, I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to put you on the spot here. You're sitting master. Sure. How many times have you been in your lodge and either called on somebody or approached a brother uh, without getting your marshal involved recently? Um, more times than I probably should have. Um, <laughs> and, and, well, that's, and that's why I ask, because we see it happen yeah. all the time. We see it happen at, at you know Grand Lodge events. We see it happen in our own lodges. There are so many opportunities where the master just wants to cut through the fat, right, and, and mm -hmm. handle something himself when he could well, use the marshal in that role. And you get caught in lodge tradition. Um, you know, in, in horse chase, we have a tradition when we open. Uh, we ask about first-time visitors and brethren raised in whatever month we are currently in. And mm -hmm. it's always been our senior deacon who has handled those duties. For the visitors, there's a, a reasonable argument because he's – you know, meant to uh, 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 accommodate visiting brethren. And we take that to that level. Is it necessarily accurate or not? Uh, maybe, maybe not. Uh, perhaps it'd be more appropriate at that point for the marshal to be, uh, uh, to be introduced, maybe not inter introducing them, but at least uh, say guiding the master around to visit them or. That, yeah. them and that, that yes. right there is something that I never, ever, ever see happen. I have never seen a master Ask the marshal to marshal the master. The, mar the master just walks around the room with without escort in most lodges on most occasions, and that's an interesting aspect of the marshal's role that we we don't really think about. You know, he's there to conduct everybody around the lodge. The master certainly has the power to do it himself, uh, well, but but again, the marshal is the guy who should be making those those moves, mm -hmm. and that's a really interesting uh, aspect of marshaling that we don't really talk about. Or think about. Um, so I want to get to this last one because it's it's very important oh, to me. And no, do you have something to say, Scott? Yeah, yeah. I just want to add, add a quick point about the gravity that the marshal escorting someone can can add. Yeah. Um, and I'll go back to my term when I was master. 
I took advantage of the marshal, my own marshal, when we closed the lodge, because I wanted my three children to be in the east to assist me. And you've never seen how much of a weight that put on the event when I looked at the marshal and said, would you please escort, you know, and I gave all of my kids names and had them brought to the east. Not only did it signal something important for them, but it single, single, signaled something important for everyone. This is a big deal to me and a big deal for my kids. And it, it you know, it's not something you see often, you know, but uh, it's, it's just one of those things that, you know, it's something that still sits with me, you know, hundreds of years later. Um, and I know that my, my own kids, uh, you know, they remember that particular moment. So I mean, you touched, you touched on that very important point. It makes it a big deal. That's, I think that's the one tying thread, right? About everything that we're talking about here is that each of these roles help to make all of what we do, including our degrees, including, you know, our openings and closings, including all of our, all of our ritual related items important. They elevate everything that right. one extra step. And you've got four steps we're talking about here where you can elevate your work. Uh, That's not a very good Masonic number, but. No, it's not. But <laughs> we did only have three. And then we started talking. We started talking it's, in our prep call. It's true. It's about true. music. And it's like, well, now we've got to add this fourth guy. Um, but I, I want to actually use what you just said as a transition, Scott, because when we have semi-public events, when we're inviting people in from outside and we have the marshal escort them around, that does add gravity to the the escorting to what's happening. But that marshal is also really somebody who's kind of leading them and introducing them to what's happening. They're kind of talking to them as they're walking up. And Jerry Becker does an excellent job of this. If you've ever seen him uh, escort somebody who's not a Mason during a semi-public or, or open event to, to talk to them and tell them what's happening and kind of put them at ease, right? Because the marshal can do that as well. The other person who really, really makes that same kind of impact is the Tyler, right? The Tyler has an important role in, in securing the lodge, but the Tyler's the first person that you see when you walk in the door. And, and Chris, I'm going to pick on you for this one because you and I shared a Tyler for the formative years of our Masonic experience, right? Those very early years, uh, we joined the fraternity in the same uh, time frame. Um, and Jack Brenner sat outside the door of both Ancient York and Rising Sun for a number of years uh, and, and still still looks over that ante room. Um, what was your experience with the Tyler when you came into this fraternity? And I'll have to apologize. I had to put myself on mute because my dog is outside making a heck of a racket. Um, so I apologize if you hear it. Um, Jack Brenner was a brother that um, lived Freemasonry. And he wasn't, he never, he never served as master. He was never in Grand Lodge. He never had any fancy titles or positions within Freemasonry. But what he did do is he greeted every single brother with a smile. He knew your wife's name. He knew your kids' names. He knew what was going on in your life. He never had anything remotely bad to say about anybody. He, he, he felt he made every single brother that walked in or every single person, you know, if we're talking about public event, every single person there feel welcome. And, but at the same time, understood what his role was, right? Understood that he did need to make sure that the right people were there. Um, that, that he did ask the right questions, right? Because we do, you know, masonry is, you know, our closed meetings are for us only. So, you know, it, that is an important aspect of, of uh, a key aspect of what the Tyler's job is ritualistically. But, but at the end of the day, oftentimes, and going back to this, Jack was the first person that I would see. He would be the first person there, except for whoever might be cooking upstairs. He'd be the first person on the third floor. And he and I would have great conversations before Lodge. And no matter what it was that was happening outside of Lodge, no matter what my day was like, I was able to go there and see Jack's smiling face and have a, a great discussion with him. And just feel the warmth that he that he radiated, and that 
completely change, often completely change the way my mindset was after crossing the threshold of the lodge room. And I think that that, that to me, and I know Tim, obviously you feel the same way that I do because it's Tyler of, of both lodges. Um, that to me is so critically important to sort of how we feel and how, how we're able to transform our mindsets to be able to go in the lodge. And the Tyler plays such an incredible role in that. And, and Jack is, is somebody that I definitely wanted to sort of illustrate and point out when it came to, came to talking about this role because it's so critical. So Scott um, and John, when you guys think of the Tyler, what, what are you thinking about? Obviously you, you've had you know different experiences than us, but but what is the Tyler's role in your mind other than obvi- the obvious, right? Well, I mean, the obvious is important to mention just because it, yeah. it is important. And I've heard horror stories going in both directions uh, in terms of a Tyler not doing his job necessarily yes. um, and letting a an individual in who should not have been let in. Uh, luckily, um, the example, I can only think of one, maybe two examples. It wasn't a case of uh, an honest-to-gosh cow when you know, somebody really trying to crash a party, so much as a um, an individual who thought they could come in because they were, uh, say, a, a Prince Hall of Origin, for example, you know, from a, say, from a jurisdiction we don't recognize. And dues cards weren't checked and got through, and it became awkward. Um, but I've also heard of cases, um, and I don't want to include any names necessarily because I don't want to call out anybody specifically, but a Tyler in uh, a, not my own lodge, but that did his job a little too enthusiastically. And when a group of brethren came to visit one of them who is a past master and suffers uh some significant health issues so he's not altogether there um didn't have his dues card with him and wouldn't take it on faith it it wouldn't allow the vouching of him by the other brethren who were accompanying him um (laughs) which you know it is probably by the letter um personally i would have probably consulted with the master to see you know what do you think um i thought he was a bit aggressive um i was not there myself but from the stories i've heard that was um that was my impression Um, but i I think that does go back a little bit to what chris was saying right he sets the tone for everybody walking into the room and that you know visiting is something that we are supposed to be doing as masons and Mm -hmm. The Tyler's going to be the guy who's standing there securing that lodge and making sure you're able to visit, but also really coloring your experience of visiting uh, from, the, from the word go. And there, there are ways to deal with that. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very public-facing position. Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's a big difference between saying, no dues card, no enter, versus, ah, oh, well, let's see what we can do. Let's go talk to the master. Uh, or you, there's a couple of brethren with you. Great. Let's, you know, I'm sure we'll be able to uh, clear this up, you know, being just very customer service oriented to be honest yeah uh, luckily those experiences of mine have been very few and far between um i i can't say i've i've necessarily met a tyler that you described chris i mean that would be wow <laughs> that would be fantastic i mean uh, the tylers we've had in my tenure at horse chase have been have been great uh i have heard um, there was a Tyler we had who uh, I think regrettably passed a couple of years before I um, became a Mason, uh, who was, if the stories are true, was one of those guys. He yeah. was Tyler forever. Everybody loved him, um, but always did his duty. He knew what he was supposed to do. He set an excellent tone. Um, but again, the Tylers we have now, they're good. They're, they're probably not quite to that level, but... Uh, Hopefully they'll they'll get there at some point. Scott, you're the Tyler now. Uh, that's just because yeah. nobody wanted you in the lodge room when they appointed you there. But um... <laughs> well, I mean, I'll be honest. It was one of those things where I went and became Tyler. I think when I was still DDGL. Mm-hmm. I know it's been since I since I sat as DDGL. Part of the I, I actually offered to sit as, as Tyler. 
because I think it took a lot of the pressure off the other members of my lodge, not having me in the room during opening and closing. Yes, I'm still there at rehearsals. Yes, I still will. Uh, I'm still called on frequently to come into the lodge room and help out with an opening and closing when we're short officers. But it takes some of the pressure off of them of having a sitting Grand Lodge officer in the room. Um, but Tyler's an interesting position because you, 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 you're one of the few people that probably talks to everyone at some point in the evening. I mean, you know, not all of us talk to necessarily everyone we see in the lodge room. I mean, I think about Grand Lodge. We were just at Grand Lodge, and the Grand Tylers literally spoke to everyone as they walked into the lodge room. Yeah. I mean, that's several hundred people in that case. Uh, you know, our local level, maybe 15 or 20, depending on what's going on in the evening. Uh, but it's it's interesting because you can do so much from that one spot to make so many other people's lives and their uh, experience at Lodge more enjoyable Uh from my own perspective, one of the things that I do is I help with laying out the materials for candidates when they come into the lodge. I'm not part of the prepping of them, but I'm helping out the junior deacon get to make sure all of his stuff is prepared. He's ready to go. I'm usually one of the few people that's talking with the candidate while they're waiting for the lodge to get to the point where they can come get them. And that's so, an important role because you're, you're serving as an ambassador of the lodge to a guy who's about to join your lodge. When, when you have a young gentleman that's standing there and you can literally see the anxiety level climbing by the moment, being able to chat and, and pass a few quips back and forth and, and just kind of get him to lighten up for a couple of minutes, it's amazing how much more he gets out of the experience afterwards because he's no longer stressed. He's relaxed. He's more receptive to what's coming. Um, I, I, it's it's kind of interesting because, you know, uh, most people don't know this, but my father was the Tyler for his lodge uh, right up into the moment he uh, passed away. He was uh, Tyler for the last, I think it was like five or 10 years for his lodge. And it's, I look at what he did as Tyler and I just can't go to his level. I, you know, as much as I would like to follow in dad's footsteps, this is one case where I just can't do it because he made the, the office his own. Yeah. You know, he had a great relationship with the junior deacon. The junior junior deacon stayed in that chair for several years. He didn't want to progress in the line, but he wanted to be, be in that role to help out with the candidates and, and help out with those types of things. So they built a repertoire of things. There were certain uh, aspects of the role that he could embellish and make more enjoyable for everybody. Uh, but when I look at what he did beyond that, it's very, this is what needs to get done. He was very uh, regimented in what needed to happen. I filled in for him once or twice and he goes, all right, so when, after the open lodge, you're going to do this and this and this, this is what you need to do for lights. This is what you need to do for this. This is how you handle that. And it's like, how do you remember all of that? And now that I'm a Tyler, I can understand because it's an integral part of the role and you don't realize what you're doing until you're doing it. You know, it's, it's, it's 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 an interesting role from a perspective that a lot of people don't see it as an important aspect of what the lodge does. Uh, you know, it's like we said before, it's a brother. You typically are. Right, we need someone. They don't necessarily need to know ritual. Uh, you know, they don't need to know this. They don't need to be able to do that. And I, and I hesitate to say it Maybe someone who causes a bit of challenges during the opening and closing. Uh, you know, someone who likes to prompt and correct. Not that any past master would ever do that. Um, <laughs> being a past master, I would never do that. No uh, but it's something to think about when you're filling that role. It's not just, you're not putting someone in that role because of the ritual prowess. you probably want someone there more for their people skills. Oh, absolutely. And but there is a ritual aspect there, right? Like, you know, when you're on a degree and, and you've got to prepare a brother who's coming late and, and and vouch for that brother and you've got to tell him what he's expecting when he walks into that lodge room tyler's got a pretty big role there in, in informing the brother about what what's going on about making sure that he he knocks at the right time doesn't interrupt something that he shouldn't be interrupting there is there is a little bit of skill that goes into you know making sure you're aware of what's going on um well and i think that's a big aspect of the position that's never really delved into you know you're the Tyler. If you are standing outside the door when the lodge is opening, you have a responsibility if someone shows up late. Yeah. Making sure they're role? attired properly, making sure that members are wearing their aprons at, at any event, whether it's, it's you know, public open lodge, you still have to have your apron on, making sure that you inform the brothers as they come in. 
my first introduction to masonry was a, a an installation before I was a mason. And the tyler stopped me, and it was Jack, and he made sure that I had my apron on if I was supposed to and, and told me that, you know, introduced to me the, the concept of wearing the apron in lodge, and, and it was telling me I didn't need to have it, go on ahead. and But that's that's important, making sure that they're wearing the apron, making sure that they're ready for, for when they step into the lodge. Um, and I think there's an aspect of sacrifice to being the tyler that we don't necessarily inform those brothers of. Because a lot of times, like you just said, Scott, you're outside the lodge during the opening and closing. And God knows, as a past master, how many times I've left the Tyler outside of the lodge for the majority of the meeting because I forgot to let him in. Um, and that's a shame, but we see it all the time. But it's, that, it's, It goes beyond just the opening and closing. I can't imagine being the sitting Tyler, assuming I'm in my in my assigned and installed office for a degree because you know frequently i'm they ask me to help out but if i'm sitting in my office i don't actually get a chance to set foot in the lodge room until we get to the later half of you know the the degree night you know i'm not told you know like the history lesson or you know or you know something along those lines when they do a presentation stuff then i might be invited in but i don't see in some cases a lot of or most of the degrees yeah, you, you do sacrifice a lot by sitting out there. And I think, you know, the security aspect nowadays is something that we may oh, want yeah. to touch on just real briefly. Well, that's it's it's one of the things that, you know, from a, from my perspective at my lodge, I'm at the door during the opening, make sure I handle all the opening stuff that I'm responsible for, because there's a little bit of, of stuff I'm supposed to do. But when I hear uh, that they're essentially open, usually, I, you know, because... You know, as much as we like to say we can't hear what's going on in the lodge room, there's deep voices that carry and the walls are not all that thick. Sure. Um, but typically when I hear that they're calling for, you know, usually the Pledge of Allegiance, you know, presenting flag, that's when I head to the doors and I lock all of the doors so that, you know, should I be invited into the lodge room, I know that the outer doors are secured. No one's going to get into the building that should be coming into the building and surprising us all. And that's a yeah. huge piece. I, I do the same thing for the youth organizations when I'm there. You know, when you guys are set, you're ready to roll. You're you're opening up your chapter. You're opening up whatever's going on down to the down to the front doors and locked. And know? Nashua is is fortunate because we have electronic locks on the door now, and we've got cameras. But we've had people walk in off the street, and, and I mean, Tom Ladd is relating a story about a, a, a cop sticking his head in the lodge and seeing a guy with a sword in his hand. But we've had people walk in off the street during meetings. And the Tyler is the only person out there. You do need somebody who's got those people skills to really kind of divert that traffic, make sure that the lodge is secure, whether it's it's the outside door. You know, if you go to Salem, for example, at Spicket Lodge, their Tyler sits at the top of their stairs and can see right out that glass door at the at the the foot of the stairs. There's a you know, there is a security aspect that, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago we didn't worry about, but now you hear all sorts of crazy things about, you know, vandalism at lodges and Tyler's the only person who's going to be outside that door in, in a lot of those cases. So that's another interesting aspect of deciding who to fill that role. You don't need, you know, a commando out there as the Tyler, but having somebody who's at least paying attention to what's going on outside as well as inside is there's a little bit of a, a multitasking that needs to be done there. So I do understand there are some jurisdictions where uh, masonry is very much underground and the Tylers, they don't have swords, they have automatic weapons. Right. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I went to Ireland um, just October, um, and not not to say that you know I, I they had automatic weapons, but the t there's a, a locked door you cannot get in uh, to the lodge room. Uh, this is the the provincial Grand Lodge of Munster building uh, in Cork, and there's you know there's a, a, a peephole and the it's not the Tyler because the lodge isn't open, but they check you at the door. Because, you know, Ireland has had a rocky history in the past with Freemasonry to some degree. Um, and it's not just, you know, this jurisdiction, we have it a little bit easier, I think. But there are definitely, like you said, John, places where that Tyler is playing a really a much larger security role than, than you would expect in a U.S. launch. So uh, we are getting on in time here, but I, I want to make sure we, we touched on everything. So I'm just going to go around the horn here and, and start with Chris. Uh, any final thoughts for the evening on these these four unsung heroes we're talking about tonight? I do want to quickly just touch on the the historical role of the Tyler. Oh, absolutely. Um, as well, just real quick. Um, 
that b- brother was actually compensated historically. Um, and, and part of what he needed to do was to draw the symbols, draw the tracing board on, on, the, uh, on the floor of the lodge for the evening's lessons, because the lessons were uh, a recapitulation and a discussion about the symbols of, uh, of the degrees, whatever degree it was for that, you know, for that particular evening. So um, the Tyler historical is actually really uh, as much as uh, an artist as he was, you know, uh, to make sure that the, 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 you know, almost janitorial, you know, making sure that the lodge was cleaned up afterwards and that the, and that the, 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 the tracing board was removed from the floor of the lodge. Um, and it was a, it was a sort of coveted, respected, compensated role, role of the lodge. So it's, it's important to remember, you know, sort of our historical origins when it comes to some of these uh, roles, even though we don't, you know, particularly use them in that way uh, now, um, to have that level of weight and respect for for that particular role as we as we're in the 21st century. Yeah, I'm glad that we're not required to draw the draw anymore because you know, other than <sighs> with a ruler and a, and a compass, I can't draw a straight line or a curve to save my life. <laughs> Scott, any final thoughts to share with us this evening? I, I think the big thing from a, a final thoughts perspective is is that. You know, as you're moving through the line, when you get to the master's role, you should give some serious thought to who these four people are, because in a lot of cases, you're you're picking people that set the tone, that are the face to the organization that you don't necessarily have with another officer. And, you know, by far, it's the people skills. And I think the other piece is to remember who these brothers are when it comes to handing out, you know, the accolades for, you know, a job well done. A lot of times these guys don't get the kudos that they necessarily deserve because they've done a lot of work. And it's just, you know, when you watch a marshal and, uh, and we'll, you know, we used Jerry Becker earlier, he's flawless in the role. You know, even when he thinks he's flubbed up, he makes it a part of the role. So it's just, it just naturally flows. You know, and when he's on his game, it's fantastic. Even when he's off his game, it's it's great to watch because he knows how to he knows how to work with it. When you have someone like that, you need to you know say, hey, thanks for the great job, and do it publicly. You know, because these are the guys that are willing to to step up and do these roles. And you know what? I don't need to go through the line. I don't need to sit as master. I'm perfectly fine sitting where I'm sitting. But they deserve the same accolades as someone who's sitting in the east because they do so much work for the lodge. I will tell you this, just to kind of piggyback off that before we go to John. When I sit in Lodge, I love all of my brothers um, very much. I love all my brothers uh, and the, the contributions they make. But the one person who I typically say, I really missed you when you weren't here last week, is Dennis Webster, because Dennis Webster's the organist. And his 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 presence is felt and missed the most um, because the music is lacking in it. You're right, Scott. I think making those recognitions uh, is a very important point. John, final thoughts. Anything to close out the evening with? Uh, well, it's hard to build on uh, what you guys have already said, but I, I would say, particularly as a sitting master, because I, I certainly fell into the trap of when it came time to build, you know, put together my officer corps for um, for my terms of number one, making sure I had bodies in those roles. Yep. Because you know, I. <sighs> I, I'm sure there's really there are really no lodges in the state that just have a huge pool to draw from and can make sure they get the absolute That's right important. person in each role. Very true. Yeah. Um, so from a practicality standpoint, yeah, you're probably going to not be able to get the absolute best person for each role. That doesn't mean you have to settle for it, though. Um, either you as the master or the individual in the role. Continue with the Masonic education. These These are unsung heroes. But they're heroes. They're important roles, and we can't lose sight of that. And to educate both with the individual brother, but also in the lodge, you know what what are the important aspects of these roles? What what they should be? What should they be doing? Um, so that you know, even though a particular brother that you're putting into a role, no matter what it is, maybe they're not what who you would initially think of as the best person for musician or marshal or whatever. Maybe they can grow into it and become the next Jerry Becker, for example. That's um, a very good help point. them grow into it and to educate the lodge as well, because there may be another brother sitting on the sidelines thinking, "Oh, hey, that's really cool. I like what that role does. It is really important. I can see the need for that. 
I'd like to do that. I'd like to shine in that role. And we need to be good examples for that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point, John. And, and something we didn't really touch on earlier is that, yeah, these are important roles. You don't necessarily, none of us are finding the right people for every single role that we've got to fill in the lodge, right? Every office we've got, but you've got to pick somebody who's willing to learn and willing to put that effort in. So that's ex that's an excellent point. Uh, brethren, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Scott will kill me if I don't do this. If you have any comments, <laughs> questions, concerns, please feel free to email us at granitecornerstone at nhgrandlodge.org. We are happy to hear from you. And we will see you next month, June 25th, where we're going to talk about uh, Masonic event planning, the kind of events you should be planning, how to make them fun, how to make them different, and how to make them enjoyable for everybody who attends, whether they're Masons or otherwise. So we hope you join us then. Uh, thank you for joining us tonight, and we will see you next month.